At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Welcome everyone to this Drug Science Podcast. And today we go to a new continent. We're going to Australia with Dr. Margaret Ross. Hello Marge, how are you? Hello, hello. I'm I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, but I, I have to warn your listeners, it is 2am here oh. in Australia. Oh, that's really so. kind of you to have made the effort. Really kind. <laughs> Such is our, our, our love for you, Dave. I was never going to knock this back, but it's um this could go down any number of existential rabbit holes <laughs> at 2am. Okay, well, it's, I guess you better kick on to make sure you don't completely fade. <laughs> Exactly. Keep me, keep me in check. Buckle up, children. Here we go. <laughs> but you've got, uh, you've got your mission, I guess, haven't you? You've got your mission to mm. keep you going. So tell us about your mission and what your vision is for uh, psychedelic therapy in Australia. Yeah. Uh, well, look, I, I'm a clinical psychologist. I, I work in, in, in cancer and palliative care and have done for the last 12 years, the last 10 years in, the, in hospital at St. Vincent's in Melbourne. And I think my, my mission came about as being, I guess, a frustrated uh, clinician insofar as seeing so many of our patients that just weren't responding to our treatments for psychological distress and existential distress. And so we were really looking for, for emerging and novel treatments. I had seen the work that had been coming out of in Johns Hopkins in my U and, and Peter Gass's work as well with, with LSD, absolutely convinced someone would bring it to Australia and nobody did. And so some years prior to, to sort of getting into to oncology and, and palliative care, I, I had a research fellow position and had been working in clinical trials. So I knew what I had to do, but I thought I'd sort of left my research years behind me, but then um, psychedelics actually pulled me back in. I threw my hat in the ring was sort of warned it was going to be a, a, a difficult slog because all of the, the previous attempts in the last decade in Australia had been rejected in terms of trying to get psychedelic research off the ground. So we were prepared for maybe not good news, but um, we worked really hard and Martin Williams from PRISM was, was integral in terms of helping us get that up and schooling us up as a team. So, yeah, put the protocol in and here we are. <laughs> so, yeah, well, tell us, tell us what you're planning to do and where you are in your plans. Yeah, so we're 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 currently running a phase two study with our palliative care patients who have depression or anxiety as a result of um, having a, a life-threatening illness. Right, right. So we're we're aiming to recruit. We're currently recruiting. Uh, we're aiming to recruit forty participants, and we're treating them with psilocybin-assisted therapy. And there are two dose sessions. First one being RCT. So they yep. have a fifty-fifty yep. chance of getting niacin or you know the active psilocybin. And then several weeks later, we actually offer people an open-label dose so that everyone has the opportunity to have the full experience of the treatment, and we followed them up for six months post that dose. Yeah, that's a nice design. That's a, a proven design, isn't it? It's uh... Yeah, yeah. We, we think um, yeah. And it's not uncommon in cancer, actually, whereby, because okay. I think ethically we felt, you know, to, to have an, an open-label extension arm 
we wanted the RCT obviously to be able to sort of contribute to the, to the science and, and, and demonstrate, you know, with the, the gold standard RCT, but, but at the same time, didn't feel right about going, oh, sorry, you got the nice and, you know, see ya. Yeah. <laughs> um, particularly with patients who had such, such enormous suffering as well, which we sort of saw as clinicians. So I think we straddle two worlds as clinician and researcher. So we're deeply embedded in the, the palliative care, pal- palliative medicine team and yeah. oncology teams. So. So hang on, let's talk a little bit more detail about the is a standard 25 milligram psilocybin dose. Yep, standard 25 milligram dose. And uh, we have three prep sessions prior to. Oh, okay, three prep. So we spend quite a bit of time with our patients. Yeah. Because I think also, you know, medically, we, we under, we, we're very keen to understand the narrative of not only their life, but also the narrative of their illness. And we need to get a, a good sense of them even before we sort of get get into the prep work. So we've, we've put a big emphasis on, on those three sessions. And hang on, on those three sessions, Marge, is, is that one therapist or two? It's actually two therapists, yeah. Wow, you've yeah. Got, that's a lot of investment. Well done. Yeah, well done for raising the money. <laughs> well, to be honest, we're not unfortunately a well-funded study in that regard. There's, there's, as you know, there's not a lot of coin going around um, and a lot of it we're, we're actually absorbing in kind. We have Good. a very Good. dedicated team and um, St Vincent's has absorbed much of the, the cost with PRISM, promising the, you know some, some funding as well that's come from Vajadara Institute. Have you ever read, read my paper, Gorilla Psychopharmacology? No, but I need to hear this <laughs> by the sound. So we've been doing psychedelic research for f- well, 15 years now. Mm. Only one grant in those 15 years has come from the government. Oh, and you're almost- Eating. Only one, and uh, most has come from philanthropists and charities. But I wrote a paper yeah. for the British Journal of Pharmacology a few years ago or called mm. Guerrilla Psychopharmacology because almost everything we have done, we have done because we have volunteers who who believe, who sacrifice their time and their efforts to help us. It is so true. Like that, and that's all we do. We're sort of you know bootlegging the compassion of our colleagues, and you know, so we've got all of our study doctors who are, who are squeezing people into their clinics so that they can do a medical screen for our patients who are coming in. And you know, I've had a, I've had a fabulous boss, um, and and my two sort of directors, and both co-principal investigators on the study, you know, with with enormous um, interest in the work as well, who basically said you can take your time off the ward in order to do this. So you've got support from the palliative care team and from the oncology team, right? Absolutely, absolutely. There's been enormous buy-in and and the reasons for that are are pretty evident when you work in this field because, you know, it's not only that there's that existential distress that they, you know, experience in depression and anxiety, but when they have that psychological distress that's not responding to the usual treatments, it can augment their physical symptoms of disease. So, you know, it augments their experience of pain and nausea and, and sleep disturbance and so forth. So there's a, there's a big, um, they see the, the benefit in being able to, to being ab- able to access this refractory distress. Yeah. Are you doing three prep sessions because you think that they're older people, or, or maybe they're not older people, but they're, they're particularly <laughs> traumatised by the diagnosis? It, it takes them longer to get their head around what's needed? You know, there's a, there's a hell of a lot of trauma actually in, in cancer and, in, in you know, I think even just, just going through, you know, pretty quite invasive investigations and having your world turned absolutely upside down when you're told you have cancer, that's that C word. So, you know, it brings you face to face with your mortality and everything you think you know about life is all of a sudden just kind of, you know, these carefully stratified layers of what you think life is about, like a sand, all of a sudden wiped out in a wave. And so people just feel completely uh, dismantled by it. 
so we, we need to, to kind of get a sense of, of well, first of all, what they know, you know, about the, you know, the treatment of once we've got there, you know, do a good formulation and history and, and as I say, the narrative of their life, narrative of their illness, but also to, to kind of orient them to, to treatment as well. They've, you know, they're often bewildered by it. There's so many investigations that they go through and treatments which can leave them quite disfigured. It can really change and alter their body. And, and yeah, of course. Of course there's, yes. there's enormous assault on one's identity, sense of identity, yeah. I think, when you go through this. So, and people can feel very reduced to their illness. Yeah, quite. Yes, yes. To what it is, that's right. They, they, yeah. It's just that lump inside them that sort of dominates everything, doesn't it? That's it. And they, they sort of, you know, and their whole life is sort of dictated by the, you know, medical appointments. And so, so all of a sudden they sort of feel like they're a set of pathology results and they're so desperate yep. to be seen and regarded. It's important for us that we want to take that time to spend with them and kind of go, this is actually more holistic. This is about you. And, and, and yes, you happen to have cancer, but who else are you? Because, you know, as you're aware, you know, any number of kind of life wounds and conflicts can emerge in, in... Well, they tend to come back, don't they? That's yeah, right. Absolutely. <laughs> so we, we felt, and also it was it was a first for us. I think it was very important that we demonstrated to our ethics, our, our, our IRB, that we would be, you know, spending adequate time screening really thoroughly and also preparing people and, and uh, I guess mitigating any uh, you know risk of adverse events so uh, from that point of view there's and we know that there's movement you know in other studies you know including your own to try and reduce that because I think you know that there's a certain advantage in having you know a more packageable I guess or an accessible treatment that's appealing Absolutely. to I guess health systems but but I think yeah I think for, at least for, for a first hit we really needed to make sure it was comprehensive. No, no. Well, I think you're absolutely right. It's better that you over you over treat than under treat. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and then, yeah. and then it's a 25 milligram dose. Mm -hmm. And then you, what's the follow up look like? So we've got um, we have so we have three sessions prior of prep session. Then we have uh, we see them the next day after their dose. Then we see them three weeks later, and then we see them again the day before their second dose, which is also sort of their, their several week follow up period. Um, but it also functions as their day before their second dose. So your primary outcome is how many weeks? Is that is that three weeks or six weeks? I can't work that out. Uh, it's actually six weeks, yeah. It's six weeks. So your the target is, is to have a significant improvement. Yeah. Psilocybin presence nice in six weeks. Yeah, yeah we've, we've got a really conservative statistician. <laughs> so like we're going for big numbers, but we're, we're, I think we're confident in, in the, the reductions that, that had been demonstrated in previous studies. And while I'm on the, the subject as well, huge congratulations to yourself and Robin and the team. Uh, for your publication last week in New England. Well, talk about, conserv talk about conservative statisticians. Boy, that yeah. was, that's a seriously conservative journal. But they almost made us say it didn't work. But anyway, I think the yeah, data, yeah. data showed it did rather well. You can see it. But I, but I completely understand where you're coming from. And I'm sort of going, oh, God, are we going to have something like that? What are your outcomes, Mara? What is your primary outcome? Well, we're looking at depression and anxiety. And we're hoping for 50 Fifty percent reduction in depression and and anxiety, as measured on Beck depression and um, state train anxiety inventory. Okay, super. So you're actually going. Uh, I think that's a. I wish we'd gone for fifty percent, <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to the mean, <laughs> because the variability we discovered. Yes, in our paper, the it was the variability that we found the psilocybin group. Almost everyone did brilliantly, apart from three yeah. people who didn't, and that shifted. Yeah. The, nature of the, it was non-parametric really but we were forced to do parametric statistics so it was uh, yeah it's a beast of a thing when you, i think when you when you 
are forced to kind of do, you know, various parametric measures, which really, can't, yeah, and it's a non-parametric. Mm. So, yeah, but but I think, you know, if, if anyone, you know, worth their salt can read that paper, they can see what you have done and what you've been able to demonstrate. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Speech <laughs> spreading the word. So what are you targeting? 20, are you, how is it, did you say 20 in each group, was it? Yes, for, for the first phase. And then we're, we're, I guess that the benefit of the, the study design means that we can then look and see, you know, particularly for that group that had the, the psilocybin in the first hit as well to sort of see if, that, if you know, we've got more like yes. efficacy yes. with one or two dose indication. Oh, so hang on, let me get it clear, Maris. So that at six weeks, they can have a second dose. Yeah. They're not yeah. switched to niacin. No. Oh, they can carry it. They can. Well, that's an interesting design. So they Open label for everyone. So we then ah, have, so we've got the, the, the 20 in the, the placebo, 20 in the active, and then 40 in the open label. Well, we haven't had anyone turn it down yet. <laughs> so, so from the second dose, we then we do a six-week follow-up. Uh, sorry, six-month follow-up. Yeah. So when, when's it going to finish? Oh God. Well, given you know the, the for the same reasons that you articulate, uh, because we're we're really kind of working within a small team and and working within the limits, I guess that, that people have. We've, we're hoping for the end of next year. Mindful that we want things to be contemporaneous, and COVID stuffed us absolutely stuffed us, and probably did for yourselves as well, but. We had um, very heavy uh, directives. You had lockdown, didn't you? Yeah, we did. Yeah. So basically, look, our, our psilocybin arrived in December 2019. We started January 2020, and then by March 2020, mid 2020, we were we were shut down, um, and we weren't able to to deliver the treatment because of the the uh, the directives that we have in our hospital in place. We couldn't within a, I think uh, we couldn't provide more than 45 minutes treatment in a confined space oh, without yeah. being in level four PPE. Yeah. And we were a little worried about what that was going to look like. So It's not great for therapy, is it? Yes. <laughs> I was reminded of the Rick Strassman experiences for the DMT and, you know, the whole, yes. you know. You see the aliens are coming there. The aliens are coming with their <laughs> the probes. Look out. So, you know, we were mindful of that and went, oh, we better not do that. But also we weren't actually allowed to either because we were working with, you know, a group of people that were immunocompromised. So people couldn't come to the hospital unless it was absolutely essential treatment. So we were shelved. So we're, we're hopeful we can get this done and wrap it up maybe end of 2022, fingers crossed. So that yeah. sounds exciting. Well, that sounds actually you know, really rather rather exciting, actually, yeah. but sooner than you think. Mm, mm, absolutely. I think Time has a habit of busy. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. This is true. But I think, um, yeah, we, we really, we've had, you know, an enormous sum. Funnily enough, we were, I guess, we were expecting a little bit more pushback and we just didn't get it, to be honest. In fact, it went the other way. We've had enormous support. Do you think that's just Vincent's because it's a kind of progressive university or do you think it's some um, change in Australia? Well, we were expecting it because we're a Catholic hospital. We were expecting more pushback. Yeah, and, yeah. And we didn't get it. We, so we were sort of primed and ready with all these different arguments and, and various things. That we, they just didn't arrive. And, in fact, it went the other way. And we, we got such enormous positive mm. support from the public. That was a useful metric. I think things are shifting. From a sociocultural point of view, things are shifting. And, you know, I think... Yeah, we're seeing more and more of that. I don't know if you know, the Australian government has just recently announced that there's a $15 million now up for grabs. Well, yeah, I want to talk to you about, I want to talk to you about what, what is happening in Australia in, in a little while, but let's just stick sure. to this. It's interesting. You, you, um, I've always taken the sort of taken the view that perhaps Catholicism is more, uh, more interested in people's psychology than Protestantism. <laughs> it seems to me Protestantism has been the big bane mm. of, uh, 
all drug laws. It's about not never doing anything that yeah. might be seen as useful or positive. You know. Yeah. Whereas Catholicism always seemed to me a slightly more lenient, more flexible, more pragmatic kind of. Yeah, and and they're, they're, they're big fans of alcohol. I say that as a battered Catholic, actually, <laughs> from back. But um, you know, being raised in a in a very Catholic kind of household and and in Catholic schools and all that all that sort of thing. Yeah, that you know that. Catholics are fond of their alcohol, so they have their biases. I don't know whether they're more flexible. The, certainly for us, we were, you know I mean, the, the hospital were tremendously supportive and our ethics committee were very, they're very progressive. They knew of this research and were, were very supportive. The other thing is as well, I think we had, we had a, a definite advantage applying in a hospital rather than a university setting. Yeah, yeah. Because one of the things that, that we were, you know, when they were sitting down for their ethics committee meetings and they were looking at, you know, phase one targeted therapies or immunotherapies that could, you know, potentially hasten cancer and accelerate cancer growth and hasten someone's death. And that was being approved, you know, looking at dose dosing studies in phase one. This was an easy sell comparatively. So, Yes, that's right. You're not killing someone. You actually might make <laughs> you might make the last few months of life a lot better, rather Absolutely. than they're not going to be vomiting even more than usual. Quite. <laughs> exactly. Or yeah, you know, that's a good point. That's a very, you know, yes. I think it was, it was yes. actually really helpful. When I think, um, you know, we had we actually obtained a, an independent toxicologist report to sort of say, you know, this is actually a really safe oh, yeah. profile because we're mindful that that you know people are still carrying you know old and outdated. Oh, yes. Kind of ideas about psilocybin. And we just went, you know, God, you know, it makes people jump out of windows. all oh, garbage. It can, if you've, if you've got a supported, you know, and really thorough treatment protocol, this can be quite a profound treatment for people. Yeah, and I think it's very clever that you're bringing, coming in from the palliative care, because palliative yes. care is about care, and it's like, this is about care, mm-hmm. whereas cancer is about biology and, and killing things. Isn't it? It, well, you so, know, I, I think that the beauty of, palliative medicine and to a certain extent cancer as well particularly from the who definition of palliative care and what constitutes good palliative care it includes spiritual and psychological care of the patient and their family so it's not taboo to talk about spirituality in palliative care so that was useful for us but also it's the area where stigma recedes from the most if somebody who's you know facing a life-threatening illness or, or you know really advanced cancer if that's going to help them, people won't say no to that or they're less likely to say no to that, I think. We, we kind of leverage that anyway. But the science spoke much louder, louder than we did. Yes, I, I, I'll just share an anecdote with you, which is um, I went to medical school. I went to Guy's Hospital in 1972 and, and there, was a, there was a professor of clinical pharmacology who actually ended up being my consultant for six months uh, yeah. when I was a resident. He was giving us a lecture on, on pain and dying. Mm. He gave the lecture. And I said, oh, you haven't mentioned the use of LSD to help people die peacefully ah. and comfortably. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, you'll never work here nut." <laughs> no, no, no. He said, well, we don't know much about that and we don't talk about that. It's an illegal drug. And I thought, okay, that's obviously got to be my life and life's ambition. So you're actually, you know, Marge, you're fulfilling my life's ambition. I, I am really it. pleased. I love it. Really I just, oh, my it. God, I'm so inspired by you. It's not even funny. But uh, the story of Eric Cast using LSD, with cancer patients, which was fantastic, not not always not altogether ethical, but his findings were so fascinating, and and you know, here we are as a result of this. Well, hello, listeners. Uh, apologies for the interruption to the show, but I have a very exciting piece of news to share with you. In December, 
I will be releasing my brand new book, The Brain and Mind Made Simple. Now, this is a book which has been developed from lectures I gave for drug science over the last couple of years before COVID. They went down very well. I discovered that people were very interested in their brain and very interested in their mind and also interested in the way that drugs, both legal and illegal, cast light on those and, and affect them. So if you're interested in your brain at all, this book will take you from the very beginnings of, you know, when we're in the back in the primordial days, when the, uh, the first animals were developing a nervous system, right through into the current ways in which we can study the brain with imaging. It also gives you insights into what goes wrong in the brain. And there are chapters on all the different ways in which processes of consciousness and the content of consciousness can change with disorders such as depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and also a big section on sleep as well, because that's a fascinating component of brain function, which is not well understood. Now, the book will support drug science and in the same way as my previous book, um, Not Uncut, did. And to celebrate the launch of the book, we're hosting a book launch in London. And this will be one of the first real-life events I've done in the past 18 months. And we're very excited to see listeners of the podcast in person at this event. So if you can make your way to London, we'd love to see you there. And of course, uh, you'll be able to buy the book and you'll have a, get a signed copy from me. But obviously, many of the uh, podcast listeners are from overseas, and we don't want you to miss out. So we'll also uh, host an online book launch as well. Um, if you follow us on the website, you'll know when that's going to be. And again, if you join our community, you'll be able to get special signed copies and also other access to other drug science events I'm taking part in. So now, back to the show. Yes, well, I, I'm glad you mentioned that the WHO have spirituality as part of their uh, ambitions because they're generally not that interested and receptive <laughs> to regulatory change in this field. But if we can actually quote their own work in them, mm. maybe they will be. Absolutely. Well, that gets me onto the topic of Australia, which is yep. fascinating. I mean, it seems to me that you've gone through a remarkable almost convulsion in the last couple of years because mm. I was been sort of helping Australia Mind Medicine argue that in psychedelics and MDMA should be a medicine in Australia. Mm. And we've got some terrible, terrible pushback from the, the TGA and, mm. uh, and Australian psychiatrists were, you know, they wrote an, well, I mean, just a, a ridiculously negative paper, which is actually so bad. I, people really couldn't take it seriously. But but now you've, uh, now you've got the government funding research. So tell me about what's been going on. Well, yeah, I think there's the... Government just just announced this fifteen million dollars that it's up for for grabs with this medical research funding, and you know I think that's that's a really useful metric because I think that they're aware that the research is showing promise, and ultimately it's coming down the pipeline. So they're making provision for that. So I think that there's good signals coming from the government, which mean you know they're they're prepared to put their hand in their pocket and and fund. But is this driven? This is obviously not being driven by Australian psychiatry because they were really <laughs> hostile. So who's driving? Is it you? I mean, no, are, you not, or are there okay. politicians? Or what, what's going on? To be honest, I don't know. But my, my sense is that not all psychiatrists feel this way. There's certainly a collective of us, you know, in psychology and psychiatry and multidisciplinary as well, that are really kind of going, we need to start dialoguing about this. There's no room for unscientific bias here. Either side, I think the thing that's, that's I mean, it's certainly for me, one of the things that I had in terms of my strategy, in terms of going, okay, I've got a bloody big thing ahead of me here. How am I going to get this across? <laughs> was that I, I would talk to people about what I wanted to do and, you know, you'd, you'd get the smirks and the smiles and, oh, my God, really, and, and, and all the mocking and all the, the, that came with it. 
but the science speaks louder than anything and you cannot ignore that this is happening and in fact it, it, it's almost embarrassing now if a colleague kind of like are you aware of what's <laughs> happening you know I think um, one of the things that's that's important for us in terms of our dialogue is going you actually need to be aware of the science here and the safety profile of this you know I'm not saying it's for everyone there's it would be remiss of me to say that but but in terms of the safety profile here and what it's showing it's just showing remarkable promise in these phase two studies yes it needs to go to phase three and we're aware of that but but I think people can look very out of step with what's actually going on and and it is coming down the pipeline so tell me a bit more about are there patient groups supporting you or is this mostly driven from the profession well look there's a, a really uh, desperate need I think that is coming from the community I think in terms of when people aren't responding to treatments and there I mean we get, we get flooded with inquiries you know on a daily basis you know for people who are desperate for, for you know relief from you know PTSD or really quite treatment factory depression and so forth you know and many of them you know some people who've had psychosis and all that kind of thing and they're just desperate for anything so there's, there's still we still have a way to go in terms of helping people understand who this is for and who it's you know not for at this stage and what we know but what what's propelling this is that, that we've we've we're we're dialoguing more. I think it's certainly helpful having the the research that's coming out. Obviously, there's the Johns Hopkins that was you know uh, produced just before Christmas with their depression study. Your study that's just come out as well. It it all promotes dialogue, and you don't argue with the science. The science is showing us something that that it, we need to take notice of. Well, that's what I hoped. That's yeah. why we did the science. And we, I mean, it's, we thought the science was actually without that, you, you're back to the well, exactly. claims, and the claims have been problematic in the and past. That's where it's fascinating to me because before all this, and now I had to sort of take a bit of a deep dive into why it was all rescheduled in the first place back in mm. the day, and uh, I sort of emerged <laughs> out of it, kind of confused and bewildered as to how it was like the data was saying something completely different, yet it was just kind of staggering to me. Well, it's politics, Marty. It's yeah. politics. <laughs> And it, but it was like, very much American politics as well exactly yeah. and, but but then this propaganda that came out of that and it had such an impact on the on our politics and our our sociocultural perspective so anyway yeah that was staggering to me actually that people could ignore the science so the fact that we're we're promoting it and dialoguing about it but also bringing it to the attention of our regulatory bodies is important but I know because when I worked in Melbourne, I had to be approved by the Victoria oh, really? Physician Society oh, yeah. to be allowed to be a doctor there. <laughs> and uh, so each state is different. So are, are are states taking different perspectives on this? Do you think? I think that there's there's, there's different red tape. I know that that WA is is very very difficult to to get regulatory oh, okay. approval. Hmm. I have got to say that that from my own experience with the the Victorian, like our state health, were were really helpful and actually quite good at helping us get this through and in quite a timely way and you know in terms of getting our federal licensing and permits that was all very good uh, the, the delays that we actually hit was actually oh hang on do you so let me before you go on you have to get two sets of permits you have to yeah. get a state permit and a yeah oh no oh, <laughs> yes yeah, so it's like oh god but in saying that it was actually really you know i just didn't get the pushback that we were expecting the delays that we had were actually about manufacturing so where is it coming from then? The UK. 
Oh, well, that explains a lot, doesn't it? Yes, this, this third world country is a long way away from you. Yes. I think, look, I think the minute you start dealing with international laws and a different ways, you know, shipping and so forth, and, and you're talking about Schedule 9, so Schedule 9 is equivalent to your Schedule 1, I believe, is that? Yep, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, the highest, it is, yeah. so yeah, so psilocybin mm-hmm. in, in, in Australia is the highest level of restriction, which is Schedule 9 under our Drugs and Poisons Act. So, you know, when you're dealing with importation of a Schedule 9, that was where the paperwork really, really was like oh god but again you know we didn't really hit a lot of issue from from our internal and our you know our national but it was more kind of getting it you know getting them the manufacturing had some delays and then getting it across from from home office home office getting an export permit so it'll be easier i think it'll be easier going forward i think it'll be easier well, I hope so. So this $15 million, mm. this $15 million, uh, have they decided what they're going to spend it on yet or is the call still open? Been, so the calls are still open and, and will be for some time. Certainly the the, the areas of, of interest that they're looking at, PTSD, eating disorders, and, God, what was the other one? Sorry, it's 2.30 a.m. and I can't remember the other. But, so they've got these areas sort of earmarked. But you've not you've not put in for one yourself? I mean, because I suppose you... Well, you know, I, I you sort of, I'm, I'm mindful that, in lots of ways, it's it's NHMRC grants and whatever else. I'm actually a very small fish there. Um, <laughs> I'm not a traditional academic in that way. Oh, right. I mean, the real scientists are getting to work now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So once you've got 100 plus pubs. Um, but, you know, kind of use that to my advantage to begin with, I think, because I think a lot of people, you know, who were in academia were, were very scared to put their head on the chopping block. I didn't have that worry. It wasn't published or perished for me. Because I think if you make one false move in, in academia, as you know, we were talking about uh, this this wonderful you know, oh the cash. I mean, this, you're the first first country in the world to actually have a mm. basically a you know a tranche of money set aside yeah. for psychedelic research. And I'm, I'm you know I've been begging, I've been begging us the Brits to do yeah. it because you know we we were ahead of the game once. Now we're going to be behind because because yeah. other countries are catching up. Yeah. And I mean, where, where, I mean that initiative of, actually came. The, the, you're still leading in terms of the, that research. I mean, God, you're just. I think we're we're sort of feeling like we're left for dust. It, it's it's going to be, I guess, rolled out the next three to five years, I believe. Okay, but is there a, is that the science minister or is the health minister? Do you have any sense of where they lobby? The health minister. Yeah. Oh, great. So, well, look, I think you know, hats off to to my medicines who have actually lobbied for this. They've done a lot of you know talking in the in the public arena about this which has really raised the profile of that but you know on the back of i guess a, a decade of advocacy and dialogue by organizations like entheogenesis australis and prism you know psychedelic research in science and medicine so you've got these people working behind the scenes to really promote that, that psychedelic compounds does have a you know place in in a medical and therapeutic well it's been a 10 years i remember i mean the last time i was a company mm. Two times before I was in Australia, and you were, you guys were just bringing in this law that said you couldn't grow any plants that might be psychoactive in your own back garden. And I'm thinking, you, you're a continent that's got more psychoactive plants than any, any in the world. And now you're trying to stop people growing native plants in the garden. This has just gone too far. I mean, it's just, there is an absurdity to prohibition in the end. Perhaps it just falls it apart is. under its own. I mean, tell me where it's worked. But, the, I mean, the, the egg on the face there was that, you know, our national flora yes. is the wattle. Yes. Oh, yes. Which is dripping. The DMT, DMT, that's right. And you're like, are you <laughs> joking me? Burn it all. <laughs> Destroy all the wattle. Absolutely. Get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. we, know, we, haven't, we wouldn't have very much left. But I think, um, <laughs> look, I think, you know, there is a shifting sentiment. I, certainly that is apparent, particularly in, you know, and I'm speaking anecdotally now, but, but certainly... Um, I think that there's 
a growing acceptance and a growing interest and curiosity, I think, in, in the general community and also in the, the medical and academic communities as well. Because, I mean, the, the science is just too compelling. You know, it, yes, I can say it's only preliminary findings, and I would agree, yes, there's, there's more work to be done. But, my God, you know, to quote Ben Sessar, you don't use the word cure in psychiatry. And the results that, that are coming out are, you know, we're not, we're not seeing anything else like it. No, absolutely, absolutely. Really um, has, is ketamine available as a, for depression in Australia? Is that... There's ketamine studies that are going on for, for depression. Certainly ketamine, we see a lot of ketamine actually in my work in palliative care as a, for pain and, and as a way of kind of resetting opiate receptors as well for people who've got really difficult yeah, yeah, yeah. pain. So, yeah, there's, it's coming down the pipeline. I, I know I keep saying that, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that that's happening. There's certainly, there's still the conservative kind of, and it will take time, you know, for, for those attitudes to shift. It's not going to shift overnight. You know, there's a, we're having a, we've been invited, Ben and I, Ben Sessa and I have been invited to give evidence to the TGA in a special hearing. Did you know about this? Really? Yes. Our TGA is going to... Yes. Your TGA is having a special hearing because they weren't very comfortable with the uh, evidence they were getting from your your local doctors. Oh, okay. (laughs) So we're we're having a special expert hearing from... From British yeah, experts. Right. Now, of course, you know, they well, might I not mean, that, that like the fact that foreigners and colonialists and all that. But anyway, we're pommies, but at least we're scientists too. You're a scientist and you, I mean, you, you've, you've paved the way for us. I mean, we're still so new at this. And I think that's why we need to be listening to our scientists, you know, and colleagues from the UK and the US and where, where you're really leading the charge. Well, I, I, you know, we've, we've got a bit to, to catch up on. At the moment, my, I mean, we've got more studies that are, that are planned and will be announced, I guess, in the coming six or 12 months, which is really exciting, which is wonderful on different uh, treatment conditions. But at the moment, I think ours is the only show on the road, and I am by no means an expert. <laughs> and, and, and to get that tag sometimes is not a comfortable position for me. So I think we would very much value your perspectives here. Well, yes, I was supposed to be there last November and the November before, but <laughs> COVID put an end to that. COVID put the kibosh on a lot of things, Dave. It was, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I think, yeah, it'll be interesting time. Let me ask you a bit about um, Indigenous peoples. I mean, is there any interest there? Is there any sort of history that we, we're learning now about the, the value of these uh, entheogens and Indigenous populations? For our Australian Indigenous? Yes, yes. I'd love yes. to know more about that, actually. I've spoken um, with... Um, Entheogenesis Australis, the, the difficulty is the fact that we don't have much in the way of fossilised kind of evidence in that regard. But given our flora has such, you know, I mean, there's so much <laughs> psychedelic compound, you know, in our in our natives. I mean, there, there are people that I've spoken to that are almost certain that there was some um, ingestion of psychedelic substances. Certainly for us, it's important that in terms of our own team, we we want to acknowledge and 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 have even in view our own healing space of you know where we do our treatment so for us it's really important that we that we have symbols of, of indigenous healing within our treatment space well absolutely and the healing power of these it might it'd be yeah. interesting if you could use psychedelics to heal that you know the awful legacy of oh the my god and that there is so much that white settlement did to our indigenous and, and continued you know, with the stolen generation, I mean, the, the list could go on. And, you know, to go further and, and to appreciate their spirituality, actually, and, and to understand the dreaming and, the, mm. you know, even in our, our own 
so in our room we have we have this beautiful Indigenous artwork about, you know, it was a walk in the dream, which looks quite cosmic and beautiful and almost a bit psychedelic in and of itself. Well, indeed, you do wonder, don't you? This, <laughs> there are remarkable similarities between Indigenous Absolutely. artwork and DMT experiences. Yes. Well, this is, this is it. This is, How so, could they not be related? Then you think it would be... <laughs> And I, you know, I think it, it's that makes sense to us. So for for us, you know, in particular, I, sh I should sh I'll send you a picture of this this artwork. You would you would you would swear it's psychedelic. It's beautiful. Please do, please do. And but but for us, I mean, in part of our musical playlist, we actually commence. It's on its fourth iteration now. Our synthesis playlist. But we start with a, a Pitjantjara man singing about ancestral creation in the dream time, and that signifies the beginning of their journey. And then after, you know. How lovely. Uh, music. And then right at the end, about maybe six hours in, there's a pause and then he sings again to sort of signal the end of the journey as well. So we're, for us, it's sort of a very much about viewing this with an Australian and Aboriginal Indigenous feel to this because it's so important. We think that there's inc incredibly healing and wisdom in it's the least you can do, isn't it? Well, I, th I, mean, I think there's such wisdom in their, their spirituality and in each. So. Yeah, I think for, for us, very, very important that, that we, we acknowledge their contribution in that way. Before we finish, I want, to, I want to go back to your CV and talk to you. You were a youth psychotherapist as well. I am. There's this very interesting tension, mm. uh, which is if there's one area where the, there is still tension between what you might call the sort of progressives or the idealists and the reactionaries, it's over psychedelics in young people. Mm. And... Um, I'm kind of the opinion psychedelics potentially could be extraordinarily powerful in helping young people make sense of the chaos we've left for them. No, right. I don't know what you think. No, you know, I, got, I received, I mean, I get all sorts of weird and wonderful mail, which I'm sure you would too, but, but I, I received a, an email from a gentleman who was in his 70s and he said, I just want to write to you to say thank you so much for what you're doing. Australia, blah, blah, blah. I was treated with LSD as a young man. And this is when it was back, mm -hmm. you know, used. Yeah, yeah legal. Yeah, yeah, quite legal. And he said he had several sessions of it as a very confused young man, as he was, he was 17, 18, really struggled with, you know, kind of finding his purpose in life and, and, and you know, was quite an angry young man and whatever else. He said he had about, you know, seven doses of it. He said that's all he needed. And it absolute like it really made him get a really good sense of what, he was doing grounded himself, you know, and, and and then helped him move through life. He said, "I'm a, a proud father, grandfather. I owe what my life has turned out to be to those early experiences with LSD, because I would have gone in a completely different direction." And I guess you know, and I get this question, you know, all the time: what What do you, you know, what else do you see for, for psychedelics? You know, I do see it as potentially having a role in in psychological wellness, not just disorder. I I don't know if I've ever seen a pair of eyes that have not demonstrated some degree of existential ache and you know this is very good for existential syndrome and again I'm not going to say it's, it's good for everyone in that there are certain people that won't do well on psychedelics I understand that but I think as a god you know that time of life is really confusing <laughs> it's, it's, and like, Indeed, what am I doing absolutely. in my life and who the hell am I and, and you know and what sort of a world are we you know trying to navigate in and, and, and it's overwhelming it? yeah it mm. is Especially as hasty to destruction. <laughs> exactly. You know, and it's kind of your first existential transition. Who the yes, hell am yes. I? And what am I going to do You're with right. my time on this little blue planet? You know, or, you know, I've worked so hard to, to be this and, you know, you've got good got, got grades. Now I'm in university, got a crippling depression because I don't actually think I wanted to do this. I think my parents wanted me to do this. 
what the fuck do I do now? Which is common. It's a very common script. So, you know, it's certainly got utility there in terms of understanding who am I and what am I doing here and where do I, where do I feel alive and most alive in this thing we call life? Well, Marge, Marge, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you. And uh, I'm sure that once you've dealt with palliative care, <laughs> deal with traumas of adolescence and growing up, I can think of no better person to do that. It's, but thank you for talking to me. It's been a real delight. And- thank you. Thank you. For, it's been lovely talking to you. Sorry I destroyed your evening. <laughs> but uh, I'm very, we're very grateful that you, you were able to keep going so long. Uh, I'm going back to bed now. I've got about five cups of tea in me, so I might be awake for a while. But thank you. It's been lovely to chat with you. Uh, lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Marge. <laughs> Bye now.